We are living in trying times, hard times, uh, explosive times. If this thing all falls apart, you know, if it all comes to an end, who are my friends? Who is my community? How will I survive, you know, the apocalypse? I'm Sammy Ardito Rivera, and this is Growing Liberation, the podcast for Midwest Farmers of Color Collective, a collective of Black, Indigenous, farmers of color, centered on racial justice and the development of food and farming systems that honor our community's past, present, and future. First, a little bit about me. I'm a member of the Leech Lake Band of Ojibwe, and my paternal grandma is from White Earth. I was born and raised in Minneapolis, but spent a decade or so learning and working across the country. I currently live with my family on 17 acres of land in western Wisconsin, where we operate Sin Fronteras Farm and Food, and I'm senior project director for Marnita's Table. Today, I am here as a member of the coordinating team of the Midwest Farmers of Color Collective. In today's episode, I'm talking to Michael Cheney, one of the founders of Midwest Farmers of Color Collective and an elder in the civil rights and food justice movements. Rooted in the reality of North Minneapolis communities, Michael is the founder of Project Sweetie Pie and has been known as the Johnny Appleseed of urban farming in North Minneapolis. He plays a key role in shaping the vision and direction of the Midwest Farmers of Color Collective, and I'm so pleased to get to speak to him today about the origins of this organization, Project Sweetie Pie, and how we as farmers of color can plant seeds of change. Welcome, Michael, to Growing Liberation Podcast. Well, thank you, Sammy. Thanks for leading this project. It's about time that we are heard as individuals, as farmers of color, as leaders of our community. It's uh, critical that our voice be heard. And I want to applaud you and the Midwest Farmers of Color and Real Food Media for making this podcast happen. Most definitely. I'm excited to be here. Same. Same. So today we're going to just be talking a little bit about you and in your history. First, uh, why do they call you the Johnny Appleseed of urban farming in well, North I Minneapolis? Don't, I don't know who the fool that came <laughs> up with that. I'm not that old, okay? But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, again, it's a euphemism that, you know, I guess a loving handle that, you know, you know, one thing that is as you get to be 70 years old, I don't know if that automatically makes you elder, but it does make you old. And so uh, I've been on this trail, on this journey for a long time as an activist, an organizer. And uh, with it comes experience and experience that you can either hoard as a human being or as one of my friends like to say, Karen is sharing. Project Sweetie Pie was born in 2010. Uh, It grew out of the threatened closing of North High. North High is the high school in the historical black community in North Mm -hmm. Minneapolis, a community that unfortunately has been marginalized, vilified, ostracized, not only by the powers that be, but, you know, even uh, sometimes even the political leaders that um, are put in place to, to lead us and to find resources. And so there were some in the educational administration in 2010 that 
wanted to close the school down. And I was part of a group called Afro-Eco. They were part of a great phenomenal group of individual artists, visionaries, organizers, Dr. Rose Brewer, Rose McGee, Metric Giles, Melvin Giles. Many of them are the founders of organizations that have really been leading the urban farm movement. You know, Sam, it's pretty amazing that what we're all doing now here in urban communities, that if we'd done it, you know, a decade ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it would have been forbidden. Mm-hmm. In fact, there were regulations that made it forbidden, you know, uh, city regulations that wouldn't allow people to grow their own food. And isn't that crazy? Definitely. You know, poorest of the poor in urban communities that were chained to poverty, chained to economic duress and uh, with no access to food access, food sovereignty. And so that's really the body of work is I like to say. We're growing good in the neighborhood, good food, good schools, good youth and family. So it's really about change in the narrative, change in the direction and the policies of our urban communities so that we can grow equity and inclusion for all. What brought you to doing food justice and farming work? Well, I've, I've long been an activist and organizer. In the 80s, I was the founder of the Juneteenth Celebration. I spent 18 years doing that. Um, in uh, the 90s, we created the Wendell Phillips Credit Union in South Minneapolis. And so I've been an activist and organizer, you know, for most of my adult life. Started as an artist trying to give voice to art and culture. And then really recognize that I had to dedicate more time, you know, more thought to really building out economics in our community. I also came into food justice and growing food because I was worried about what kind of skills I had uh, if society broke down or, you know, what do I have outside of this kind of technological world? And I was like, well, I want to eat. So (laughs) let's learn how to grow food, knowing about climate chaos and and environmental justice from an indigenous rights background, I kind of was like, well, things are going to get harder. We people of color, uh, folks in the urban areas, poor folks, we're going to be the ones that are going to be most impacted. And what do we need to do? Well, we need to be able to eat, right? What's your earliest memory of food? Or farming? Well, you know, um, as they say, you can take the boy out the country, but you can't take the country out the boy. And so I actually, you know, was born on a farm in a place called Shell Lake, Wisconsin. Uh, My grandfather and a bunch of African-Americans came from out of Iowa Mm. uh, in search of better life, right? You know, I mean, that's the migration story is that people leave there and come here because they're looking for a better life. And so my grandparents, no different. Uh, You know, the early part, you know, the century ended up leaving Iowa in kind of a group and coming to northern Wisconsin for rich farmland. So they come to get them some farmland. And uh, slowly, one after another, left because community is also important. And Mm. they felt ostracized. And you know, as somebody who actually owns a farm in Wisconsin yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a city girl. As I mentioned before, I was raised in Minneapolis um, and spent most of my time in cities. But it was really just thinking about the future and also 
just a desire to get back to to the land because that is an important value uh, from my background. Well, you don't have to be a genius to realize that, you know, we are living in trying times, hard times, uh, explosive times. And that I like the question that you pose to yourself that kind of helped shape your journey and your uh, food story is, is, you know, if this thing all falls apart, you know, if it all comes to an end, who, who are my friends? Who is my community? How will I survive, you know, the apocalypse? And not that we're conspiracy theorists, but these are real, genuine concerns and issues that in working with kids over the last 10 years, one of the first questions I always ask them, I say, well, what would you do if Cub Food closed tomorrow? Yeah. First of all, they think that's oh, that's preposterous. Cup foods. Well, well, anyway. Well, you know, it's not so preposterous as we witness in North Minneapolis right now. You know, the closing of some of our food stores. There's only mm-hmm. one big food store. Cub Foods is the only one left, and many of these other stores are closing. I just heard that Walmart is going to be closing up in Brooklyn Center. So, mm. you know, it's not a scenario that's so far fetched that it could happen. And the kids will say. Well, you know, if I, if I if a cub food close, so what? Uh, you know, I'd go to the corner store. And I said, well, no, you wouldn't because those corner stores get their food from the same source that Cub Foods does, mm-hmm. which is super value is the food broker. And so if Cub Foods doesn't have food, then you best believe that these small corner stores, these gas stations, aren't going to have food either. And so that's why it's critical. Wars have been fought and won over food supply. Yes. And so it's not a far-fetched fantasy that, you know, makes you and me crazy. It's just that as as thoughtful human beings concerned about the future, concerned about the future of our families, that, you know, you best be prepared. To fail to plan is to plan to fail. Well, yeah, definitely. You know, I came of age in the early the 90s, early 2000s, and the indigenous environmental movement, and already we're talking about climate change and some what's going to be happening with climate chaos. We talked 50 years down the line, but here we are 20 years down the line, and already we're seeing, like, all of these extreme weather events. Um, then with the pandemic, we already kind of had a, a preview of what's going to happen with food supply, right? Like everyone getting all scared and overstocking and people couldn't find what they needed. It was it was definitely a, a good wake-up call for a lot of people to be like, okay, yeah. what happens when these systems shut down? What do we have to take care of each other? Food is a pivotal um, point for all of us to organize around, to consider in terms of how do we feed our loved ones, our families, you know, uh, and, and quite frankly, how do we change the paradigm from us being just mere consumers to becoming food producers? Yeah. And how do we, so it's, it's about more than just growing the food. It's also about cooking the food, distributing the food, preparing the food, you know, what I call the restoration of the commons. You know, what is our common denominators as human beings, regardless of our race, creed, and color? And it becomes a pivotal way for BIPOC organizations to really imagine how do we move forward, you know, as we're all victims of environmental apartheid. Speaking of uh, our communities coming together, tell me a little bit about the origin story of the Midwest Farmers of Color Collective. 
Well, you know, I, I take my hat off to Zoe Holloman and Vera Allen and folks that really are the founding mothers, if you will. Uh, Zoe and I go back, uh, you know, maybe almost nine, ten years. She has a wide array and probably 20, 25 years as a food advocate. And she brings all of that experience, all that wisdom, all that knowledge, and saw the value in us as BIPOC organizations, um, organizing together, uh, standing in solidarity, and really coming together to uh, implement new styles of leadership and how bringing some of the indigenous wisdom from our ancestors and seeing if we can't build a healthier food system, if we can't create a more eco-friendly environment, if we can't build a society that understands the sacredness of nature. I think it's really important, especially here in the Midwest, sometimes people forget uh, that there are people of color in Minnesota, have been since before it was Minnesota, Um, and just uh, the importance of us kind of coming together. I know that we're not all a homogenous group as, as black, indigenous, and other people of color. Uh, we have very different histories, cultures, politics, and sort of how we relate to the systems. Um, so it can be sometimes challenging to bring uh, our folks together. Uh, have you had any past experiences in which cross-cultural organizing and power building happen between different groups that kind of inform why you believe this work is important today? First of all, um, myself, I am... Um, Biracial, is that the term everybody's using now? You know, I mean, you know, but, you know, oftentimes I feel history is a misnomer, race is a myth, and that, you know, it certainly is a device that's been weaponized to divide us. And so, you know, I, I, like to perceive myself as every man, uh, as a human, a man of color. We don't need a natural catastrophe. We are in one. We don't have to imagine a world lost. We are there. We don't have to imagine a future of uncertainty. We are there. The future is now. And it's critical that we organize. In the 90s, I spent a lot of time working with Clyde Belcourt and folks, you know, and we closed the liquor store on Chicago and France. Franklin. They had a liquor store on the corner of, of the school there. And uh, I went to Clyde and I asked him, I said, you know, I wanted to create Wounded Knee in the city. And I wanted to close down this liquor store because it had been holding the uh, Southside community hostage long enough. And I, we are at war. We are at war with Snyder's Liquor Store because education and alcohol just do not mix. And then I joined Clyde when in up in Hayward, Wisconsin, in Spooner, Wisconsin, not so far from my mm-hmm. hometown. Mm-hmm. And we went up there about the, um, you know, spearfishing. And they referred to us as timber niggas. Yes, yes. Okay, so, you know, if you're a brown person, if you're a black person, if you're a person of color, you know, caught up in a racist society and a racist culture, a nigga is a nigga is a nigga. And it don't matter what too much what shade of color you is. You just ain't white enough. And so I so that being said, it's been a bond that I've long established is, you know, someone who working in Minneapolis, trying to make Minneapolis all that it can be is I know that it's important that if the world hadn't undergone the colonialism, the oppression, 
what what kind of world would we be living in? It's interesting that you brought up uh, Clyde and the American Indian Movement and just thinking about how that movement was informed by the Black Panther Party and the work that was being done uh, across the nation then and um, just about how our movements and our work kind of inspires one another and how we have more power when we come together. I I mean, I remember when I grew up, communities were really siloed still, um, and we didn't have the the beautiful diversity of of immigrant and refugee peoples that we now have today in the Twin Cities uh, with all the amazing food <laughs> and culture and you know, new ideas, new thought, you know, new ways of being that have come in. Uh, and I remember when I went, I went to the West Coast, and that's where I kind of, I like to say I got my movement education in the Bay Area. And that was really the first time I saw different communities coming together and, and talking about historically how people push forward our common agenda. Power is served when we're kept apart. As an Indigenous person, culture is very important to me and like having spaces to be with your own people. But I also really believe in, if we're ever going to get anywhere, we have to get there together. Well, those are the rituals that define uh, what community is mm. or is not. And so I think that that's really the strengths that, you know, that ritual of, I like to say, until we bring the drum back, mm. you know, until we integrate drum into our day-to-day, you know, lifestyle, our day-to-day ritual, that that's what keeps us on pace. You know, that's what really will restore, again, the restoration of the commons. It's not just about a broken food system. It's about broken communities. We are our brothers and sisters keeper. And, uh, you know, as you grow in wisdom, you know, you realize that you may have your personal life, you may have your family life, but there's also such a thing as your civic life. And we, we just kind of make the mistaken assumption that everybody knows what community is, or everybody knows what it means to be a good neighbor. And that's could be further from the truth, you know, we have to demonstrate that. We have to lead by example. And, you know, we have to even reach out. It's not even about education because, you know, some of the most educated people are, you know, the folks that are the most broken and who have the lack, the kind of social skills and don't know how to interface with each other. Again, as communal people, we have our own ways and means of being, and we can all learn from each other. We can, we can to really, if nothing else, learn to value our distinct differences. Definitely. Most of our, our communities came from communal societies, right? Most of our peoples came from backgrounds where it wasn't this uh, American individualism that we kind of get pushed into. Uh, and just kind of returning to taking care of each other and being in relationship with each other. Uh, and then, you know, for indigenous communities, that relationship extends to the land, which brings us back to our food and farming work. Uh, plus, exactly. food is a fun food is a fun way to bring people together. That's another reason I like food work is because we all like to eat <laughs> and we like to eat good food. And it's a, it's a better organizing tool than doom and gloom sometimes. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, what did your grandma's used to cook and what are the what are the vegetables? Oh, can you get those in the stores? You know, can you get them at Cub? Can you get them at the corner store? No. Well, let's start growing them. Let's find out how you can bring that back. Right. 
Well, that's all part of the value of the Midwest Farmers of Color and why it's such a phenomenal organization. You know, some of the programming that, you know, I'm most proud of is we've got a cultivators fund that is uh, farmers and uh, can apply for some seed money to do, you know, maybe buy a piece of equipment, put in an irrigation system. You know, we got the social hangout, mm. you know, where once a month farmers, are, you know, all members of the Midwest Farmers of Color, you know, uh, there's a Zoom call because it can get lonely out there on, that fa- on the farm yeah. and it can get lonely in in these social and political movements. And so we've got to really take some time as human beings to rest, to recharge and to really find out that we're not alone in that in in our circumstance and that there's others who are suffering. So the the the. Uh, Zoom that we do on a monthly uh, farmer social Zoom is very important. Um, we're do always advocating and working on legislative policy. We just came back from Washington, D.C. A number of us went out there, uh, uh, Moses, Lilly, and uh, some folks from the Midwest Farmers of Color. A shout out to them. They were, you know, on, the, on their game. And we went out and we met with legislators and shared with them, you know, some of the issues. Uh, issues and uh, things that we as farmers of color access to land, you know, some of some of which legislation that we also wrote letters of support and continue to go lobby and support locally and nationally. So we're working on a um, story mapping project. Sophia Benrood is leading that charge. She's another food advocate that's been, you know, in the game for years. We want to give voice to the farmers because, again, they are the salt of the earth. Farming is not for, uh, you know, for the weak of heart. It's a thankless job, but it's so critical to the growth and sustainability of our communities, of our society as a whole. Definitely. Even when you're doing it as a business and not in a nonprofit way, you do not make money on small scale uh, agriculture or family farming, uh, farming without the use of pesticides, right? Not doing the the big things like corn and soy, right? Well, the factory farm, again, you know, when we talk about global warming, climate change, right? I mean, you know, some of the uh, work that some food fighters are doing to really, you know, try to curb corporate agriculture, right? Again, if as a uh, advocacy group, as a political um, education group, you know, the work that we do is critical and and uh, uh, important that uh, there be watchdog organizations, advocacy groups, education groups that's really raising the bar, raising these critical questions and making sure that as uh, communities of color, as farmers of color, that our needs and wants, that we're out here, again, getting our fair share of the pie. Land access is hard. <laughs> and especially if you come from a community without uh historical access to wealth if you don't come from generations of farming families, right? Um, I mean, when I was younger, I definitely didn't, if I thought of a farmer, I did not think of people of color. I thought of an old white guy and some corn. (laughs) And uh, so just to think about our people being able to do that um, and accessing that land and having enough land to grow enough to not only feed yourselves, but also to create a business is hard work. And so that policy work's really important so we can we can get the capital that we need to start those businesses and and have more sovereignty in our communities and our families. 
Just think for generations, you know, resources were deployed by, you know, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, you know, it went out to rural communities and it it gave them ed funding for education. It gave them funding to build their family businesses and family farms. And yet if we were in an urban community, white as well as black and Native American, we were left out of the will. And so these organizations that are public entities, governmental agencies meant to serve all Americans, really ignored those of us who lived in, in urban communities. And so this whole question about equity and inclusion to the top administrative priorities for President Biden is one, agriculture, and another one is equity and inclusion. And so the work that we're doing as, as urban farmers, as BIPOC farmers, we are leading the way and demonstrating how you go about equity and inclusion. You know, I never talk about urban farming in isolation. I always talk about urban farming, local food production. And I like to say that we really won't know that if we've achieved equity and inclusion until the value-added product sitting on the big box stores is more reflective of who we are as a culture. Where is the gumbo and, you know, all those recipes that your mom and your grandparents had, you know, those were all small businesses suffering from arrested development because there weren't resources to really help get them to the marketplace. And so I think that's the value of organizations like Midwest Farmers of Color and all of the other phenomenal organizations like, you know, Heal and Farm Aid and everybody who is really realizes that we need to support farming because farming is food and we're all going to sit down around the table somewhere before the day is done and break bread. Yes. Yes. Well, we all need to eat. <laughs> That's one thing that we have in common. And we can't always depend on the big food systems because we don't know how long they'll be able to last with their dependence on fossil fuels, shipping overseas. I think most of the corn and soy that's growing up around where I we live goes to goes to feed cattle which go overseas. So it doesn't even actually benefit the local community. So we definitely need to work on building our local food systems, uh, both in the cities and in the rural areas. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the Growing Liberation listeners? Well, I'd like to uh, uh, invite them to learn more about uh, Midwest Farmers of Color, learn more about Project Sweetie Pie, uh, get involved in our the People's Garden Initiative, again, one of 17 in the country. There's much, much work to be done, and there's, you know, too few trying to do the work for too many. And so if we're going to grow a sustainable food system, if we're going to grow a a sustainable planet, then we need all hands on deck. We need to escape from the environmental apartheid and realize that our voices matter, our wisdom and our genius matters, and that we can't make this happen until all of us are on board and we're all rowing our boat in the same direction. So um, I thank you, Sammy, uh, for you know holding this conversation with me. Thank you so much, Michael. It's really great to be able to sit here and talk with you and hear some of your stories. It's important for us to know uh, where we've been so we can figure out where we're going. 
uh, and you have such a wealth of information and history and you just do so much great work here in the cities. Thanks for listening. This is Sammy of Growing Liberation and the Midwest Farmers of Color Collective. This podcast was recorded in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. Learn more about our work and this podcast by visiting midwestfarmersofcolor.org and look for Growing Liberation wherever you get your podcasts. For our next episode, we'll be recapping our collective members' participation in a rally in March in D.C. about farm resiliency. We'll talk to you later. See you next episode.